welcome to The Greatest Show on Grass, a podcast that covers the Los Angeles Rams in light of the team's history. It's an old adage that a great prototypical NFL cornerback must have a short memory. If you're beaten deep, which happens to the best of them, you need to put it out of your mind so you can focus on the next play. Like speed, good hip flexibility, and the ability to change directions quickly, having a short memory can be the difference between success and failure, which makes it so mind-boggling to sit before 76-year-old NFL legend Kermit Alexander, because you're sitting in front of an all-time great defensive back who, perhaps more than any other quality, is defined by his depth of memory. In his 2015 autobiography, The Valley of the Shadow of Death, you see that memory on full display when he recalls with vivid moral clarity the day of August 31, 1984, when Alexander's mother, sister, and two nephews, ages 8 and 13, were murdered in South Central Los Angeles during a home invasion by members of the Roland 60s neighborhood Crips. But memory for Alexander doesn't just point to the past, it animates the future. After Haiti's 2010 earthquake, Alexander and wife Tammy decided to adopt a child from the devastated nation. But after meeting that child's four siblings, ended up adopting all five. Alexander's concern for future generations extends beyond his immediate family. He supports the Rays Foundation, Orange County's Child Abuse Prevention Council. And on Sunday, January 22nd, he'll be holding his 8th annual playoff party at the Citadel outlet. It'll feature a ton of Rams greats, including Rosie Greer, Leroy Irvin, Greg Bell, Reggie Doss, Ron Brown, and really you should be there too. For tickets, go to PCAfootball.com. I never got to see Kermit Alexander play, but from what I've read, he was a great tackling corner and safety and an electric game breaker on interceptions, punt returns, and kickoffs. He was drafted by the NFL's San Francisco 49ers and AFL's Denver Broncos in 1963. He chose to play with the 49ers, and during his six seasons there, got to witness the storied Rams-Niners rivalry from the other side. Then, in what he calls the greatest moment in his pro career, he was traded to the Rams, where he would experience the crucial period in Rams history, 1970-71, to the final days of the George Allen era. It's rare that you get to see so much of the kaleidoscope of human experience embodied by one person, Hero, villain, victim, warrior, a paragon of justice and forgiveness. But sitting in front of his fireplace in Riverside, California with wife Tammy, talking about his feelings returning to the Coliseum to watch his hometown team play, another prominent part of his identity is on display. Alexander is, and always will be, a Rams fan. That kind of sets the tone for uh, when my family moved to California. In Louisiana, I was limited what I could do because of segregation. And when my family moved to California, because my dad had been part of the group that integrated the U.S. Marines. Yep. 
And so when he went back to Louisiana, he realized he couldn't live there anymore because he just spent four years living in an integrated society. And that wasn't the case in Louisiana. So my grandfather, who was the pastor of our church there, they talked about it, they prayed about it, and my dad got on a train and came to California. And then I was uh, lucky enough, because of my mom, I was in a private school. My mom and dad, my mom was, was raised as a Catholic and my dad was raised as a Methodist. And so my mom prevailed in terms of what, what schools we would go to. And so we were in a private school we call parochial school. What was the, the It was uh, um, St. Malachy's uh, in, in South Central, Los Angeles. And that was an integrated situation. Uh, I excelled in athletics and I excelled in school. I was a straight A student for seven or eight years. That's how I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. And then I went to a private high school called Mount Carmel, which had a tremendous reputation both academically and athletically. And I had the great fortune of playing with a couple of legendary guys called the McKeever Twins. I made the, the varsity team as a, as a 10th grader, uh, became a starter in the middle of my 10th grade and played with them for two years. Marlon McKeever and... Mike McKeever. Mike McKeever. Yeah. They were both SC Trojan alumni and uh, college All-Americans and player of the year kinds of players. Well, they were my high school teammates. They became my best friends. They became my mentors. And... I did almost anything. Did they all, were they from the same neighborhood? No. The, the irony of it is because it was a Catholic school, the district was huge. So it was anywhere in Southern California they could go to this Catholic school. And uh, we, for, we were from different parts of Southern California. And the interesting thing about that is that wherever they were, wherever I came from, was so different that we normally would never have met except in a situation like this. Were you tempted to go to USC because of your relationship with them? Yes. And the only reason I didn't go to USC was because of the feelings my family had about UCLA. Coming from the South, UCLA was, was heaven for African Americans because it was a, a, a tremendous university and it was integrated. Coming from the South where it was segregated, didn't matter how good I was, I couldn't have gone to LSU. Didn't matter how good I was, I was the wrong color. USC was a notch above LSU, and I was welcomed at UC USC. Not only was I welcomed there, they thought it was automatic that I would go there because half my team, my high school team, which was a, which, which a championship high school team, all went to USC. And so I had a walk-on situation where all I had to do was say yes, and I would be part of that group. The irony of it is, is that my family thought UCLA was the star in the sky, was the place that for us African-Americans was heaven because no one else had ever given us the opportunity to excel. You have to remember, Jackie Robinson came from there. Of course. Uh, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Kenny Washington. Kenny Washington. All of those Woody guys. Woody Strode. Woody yeah. Strode. All of those guys. And so it was natural when uh, my family found out that UCLA was interested in me, that they all prayed that that's where I would go. Because this was a place that in growing up in the South, if you wanted to see where you, if you had the ability where we'd go first, it wasn't Harvard. 
wasn't Yale, it was UCLA. And next to UCLA was Cal Berkeley. Those were the two schools that were heavily integrated and afforded opportunities for minorities to excel. All they had to be was good enough and bright enough. And I was part of that group that got that opportunity. And so when my grandfather found out that, that UCLA was interested in me, they flew me back to Louisiana to visit his church because they were all praying that I would go to UCLA. If I wasn't gonna, wasn't going to go to a local school in Louisiana, the only other school that was that was fashionable for us was to go to UCLA. Are you t- you're you're too young to see Jackie Robinson or or Kenny Washington play on the field, right? Yes. Yeah. But you knew of their impact. I knew the history. I heard about it all the time because family talked about it all the time. They also like uh, are went to high school in Los That's Angeles. Right. That's right. And so I knew the history of all the African-Americans at UCLA, all the ones that went to USC, all the ones that went to UC Berkeley, et cetera, et cetera, because history was important to us. After college, you have another big choice to make, right? You're drafted both by the NFL's um, San Francisco 49ers and the uh, AFL's Denver Broncos, um, both in the first round. This is a, a a Rams podcast, so we don't talk that much about the San Francisco 49ers uh, on it, but uh, you spent a big part of your prime with the 49ers. Could you talk about uh, the secondary that you were part of in San Francisco? Because it was a, a really – the team – wasn't always great, but that secondary was was incredible. Yeah, it was it. It was interesting from the point of view that uh, it was the first time. I think at that point that the secondary was all African American. Mm-hmm. Usually, you had one or two guys, and then they pieced together your defensive secondary. For us, we ended up with all four guys in the secondary as African-Americans, and, and, and one of them was an all-pro, was A.A. Woodson, and that's how it happened. And you played in Kazar Stadium? Kazar Stadium, yeah. What was that like? Is that this... was like playing in my high school stadium. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> it was a small stadium. It was very, very um, – it was very close. The fans were nearly on the field. They were very loud and very boisterous, and they loved their team. It was so bad that referees at times in very tense moments would have to stop play and ask the crowd to be quiet so that the the other team could hear their own quarterback make calls. <laughs> and we loved it that way. Can you um you know tell me about the Rams 49ers rivalry? Um a lot of people, you know, a lot of players have been able to experience it, but you are one of the few players to have been able to experience it from both sides. When you were on the 49ers, uh, what what did the Rams rivalry um, mean to you? Well, I grew up being a Rams fan. I used to sell newspapers to go to the games. So when I was, when I was in a position to play for the team my favorite team hated, that was unusual. So I'm in San Francisco trying to figure out how I'm going to handle this the first time we go to Los Angeles and I get booed. Because I very seldom had that happen. But I had to understand it was possible because I was I was the hometown kid that abandoned the hometown. Uh, and so uh, 
surprisingly, when we came down here to play an exhibition game and uh, we were introduced and I ran out on the field, I got nothing but cheers. And I was stunned. And I ran to the sideline and I looked at the coach. I said, what's going on? He says, aren't you the hometown kid? He says, yeah, well, they love their hometown kid. Who was the coach at the time? At that time, it was uh, Jack Christensen. And he started laughing because he was an all-pro defensive back for Detroit. And so he laughed when I asked. I said, what's going on, coach? I said, they're cheering me like I play for the other team. He said, no, you're the hometown kid. Wow. And they love their hometown kid. They don't care where they play. And so that's when I grew up a little bit about how fans treated players. And that was an amazing thing for me. I got to run out on the field for the first time against my hometown team. And I almost couldn't remember the plays we were supposed to run because I, I was so excited. Where was it? It was an exhibition game, but it was, was it exhi- in the it Coliseum? It was in Los Angeles at the Coliseum. The Coliseum. How fierce and intense was the rivalry? Oh, it was uh, unimaginable. Um, I remember when we came down here on a Friday, and we usually would go to a, a, an away game on a Thursday. They We came down late on a Friday, and the reason they did it that way was because they didn't want to be harassed by the hometown fans. I didn't re- really mean, understand what that meant until we got here overnight. There was a lot of noise in the parking lot, a lot of fans yelling and screaming all night long. You didn't, didn't get very much sleep. And then the night before the game, they literally kept us up all night. The fans out in the parking lot and in, in the surrounding areas cheering all night long. What year was this? Probably this, 63, This was 63. And when I asked my coach about it, he said, this is normal. I said, what do you mean it's normal? He said, it's not normal for me because I'm usually – here and my fans are all on my side. These guys hate us. He said, oh yeah, that's normal. In Deacon's book, one of Deacon's books, he, I'm pretty sure I remember him talking about how they used to treat this, uh, the, um, the field at Kazar prior to the Rams coming to town in order to kind of thwart the quickness. Yes of Deacon on the edge. I mean, at least that's his perception. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's anything to that rumor? Did you notice the field uh, at Kazar being different when the Rams came to town? Yes. You did? Yeah, they they left the sprinklers on for 48 hours. Wow. So that the field was was nothing but a, a, a soggy mess to eliminate the quickness and the speed that the Rams had. So you, um, get back to Southern California in 1970. Um, after kind of toiling with some so-so teams um, in San Francisco. You leaving coincides with John Brody's emergence, um, and the 49ers all of a sudden, you know, get good. But you were still on two very good uh, Rams teams. Um, you played for during George Allen's last year, 1970, and Tommy Prothko's first year in yep. 1971. Uh, what do you? What are some of the the nice memories you have of those years? Well, I think the the most important part about it was, irrespective of how the teams were, I was at home. I was back to my with my home playing, with my dream team, my hometown team, team I used to sell newspapers to go and watch, uh, the teams I used to dream about playing for. Now I was actually actually doing it, 
And not only that, I was in, 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 in the old neighborhoods. I could see the people that I grew up with. I could meet with my aunts and uncles. I, I was at home. What, what, did, what was it like uh, playing for George Allen? Well, George Allen was one of the few coaches that I had met in my career that believed in his players. And he took, and how he would put together a team was he'd take everybody the best that they could do and make that part of his game plan. He sat me down when I was traded from Los An- from San Francisco to Los Angeles, sat me down for a week and had me go through all the things that I had done as a player, both as a kick returner and as a defensive player and as an offensive player. And he took all the things that I did very well and incorporated it into his defense, made that part of their program. And so I didn't have to relearn anything. I just did the things that I'd always done. And uh, he just called it by a different name. And when I asked him why would he do that, he said, why would I waste my time trying to teach you how to be an all-pro when you're already an all-pro? Why don't I just take what you have and make my guys use it to their best ability? And that's what I found was really interesting about him. He did that to every one of his players. Mm. So he had had – Almost every player that he that played for him were an all pro at some point in their career, and he had all these all pros working together, which was which was unheard of at the time, because usually there was such a uh, a, a huge dissension element involved in bringing that many players from that disparate background to try to play together because of egos, because of egos, and because of money. What he sat you down and said, listen. I'm not going to have any trouble paying you because I'm going to pay you more than you ever paid before. We didn't find out later that he was going against what management wanted. He wanted his players, so he signed them to contracts that management had to live up to. Right. That's one of the reasons why NFL management hated George Allen right. because he was a team unto himself. And when a guy walks in with a contract and he hands it to the general manager, the general manager says, that's not the contract that I have. They say, well, you better honor this one or I ain't playing. Yeah. Well, then now he'd go back with his group and say, well, what are we going to do? He got in trouble a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why they hated George yeah. Allen. Yeah. Because he was really a player's coach rather than a team coach. Yeah. Uh, and we all knew that. And so the interesting part about that is that we played better for him because he was our coach. He wasn't their coach. And that was a different different element for me. I'd always worked for a team that uh, fostered their point of view. This was the first time that uh, I had been in a situation where the, the team was the personification of the coach and not the, not, not the team. I'm sure it was different under Tommy Prothko. Yes. Um, I mean, Deacon goes to great lengths to talk about how much he disliked and how he felt like things went turned for the worse. Um, you still had a good season yes. in 71, though, you know, probably that a lot of that is because of the legacy of George Allen. What do you remember from 1971? Well, I, I, I realized halfway through training camp that we were in trouble as a team. Uh, part of his problem was he was extremely bright and he knew an awful lot but he didn't have what we considered professional uh, tactics he had had nothing but college teams he played they'd played exceptionally well 
I don't think he understood how good the pro players were. So we ended up in a situation where a number of the guys played 50% of their capabilities because they wanted to stay healthy. And they didn't figure they'd be there long, so they didn't want to get injured and have to move to another team while they were injured and they couldn't play. Right. So their wow. number one protection was for themselves. So we, we stopped being a team. We, we were a bunch of individuals trying to play for a coach that didn't understand how we, how we played, didn't understand the game that we were playing and at the level we were playing, and so we had to protect ourselves. So that didn't do very much for us as a team. Um, who were some of your, the teammates that you uh, forged the strongest bonds with in 1970 and 71? Uh, guys like Richie Pettibone, uh, Maxie Bond, uh, Gabriel, uh, uh, Jack Snow. Was the Coliseum a glamorous place? Yes, it was. Southern California was a glamorous place, and Hollywood made that happen. Uh, it was a natural, it was our way of life. So it wasn't that, it was not that big a deal for us to, to have that kind of uh, uh, institution in our backyard. For somebody coming from outside to this, it was a major distraction. For us, it was no big deal. Do you remember seeing celebrities around a lot? Oh, all the time. All the time. Um, it was nothing. I became very good friends with, with Bill Cosby. Cosby used to walk down on the field and stand at the end zone when nobody else was supposed to be down there. They allowed him to do that because he was Bill Cosby. And I can remember standing with my back to the end zone and looking over, and there he is. And he's waving, and he's saying, intercept the ball and go the other way. And it was fun. But then when I get to the sideline, the coach said, who was that? I said, that was Cosby. He said, oh, never mind. And walked away. It was no big deal. And it became a way of life, and so you didn't pay that much attention to it. There's this story of uh, Jack Snow um, catching a ball out of bounds and knocking over Telly Savalas, and then coming back into the huddle and say, I think I just creamed Kojak. That's a fact. That's a fact. And he went to apologize at the end of the game, and Kojak said, it's not your fault, it's my fault, I was in the way. <laughs> and, but that was it was not a big deal. In every other stadium, they wouldn't allow anybody on the sideline that close to the end zone. In, in, in Los Angeles, it was a way of life. You couldn't keep them out of that. Did Jonathan Winters? Jonathan Winters a, was a big was a big fan. Travel on the plane with you guys sometimes. Yes. Yeah, that's ridiculous. He had he had an open invitation to go anywhere we went. And he was the biggest. He was he was one of the biggest. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, everybody else had to somehow get to where we were going, and then they were given a ticket. But he got to travel with us. Crazy. And it wasn't unusual because so many of our our uh, minority owners were former stars. True. So there was there was a carte blanche attitude about it. So what were some of your your Hollywood experience? You you. Um, yeah. Well, first, before we get to heaven, can wait. Um, you get depicted in one of the most famous football films in history, Brian's Song. Um, take us through how that, how you found out about that, and 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 how you felt about your depiction. Well, I didn't pay that much attention to it, but part of Brian's Song came out of a real game. Right. Tell and us about that game. We're playing the Chicago Bears. Still on the 49ers. I'm still on the 49ers. 68. And 
Brian Piccolo was a big star on the team. He was a mediocre player, but he was a star on the team. He fit whatever it is they needed. And so we're playing them twice a year. And so my legend with the Chicago Bears started with Gail Sayers. When Gail's playing in Chicago and he's having this tremendous game, it was against the 49ers. And uh, we come back the next year and we're playing him again there and we're bound and determined to stop him. And on two or three plays, I made tremendous tackles on him and one cost him the rest of his career that year when he tore his knee up. And I can remember telling him before the warm-up, I said, I said, Gail, watch your back. They're after us to stop you. And I'm afraid they're going to do some bad things. And he said, ah, go to hell. I said, what? I said, he said, I said, go to hell. I said, right, you got it. So from then on, it was me and Gail. I'm chasing him all over the field. Now, the year before, I was part of that team that he scored six touchdowns against. And on two of those touchdowns, I missed him twice. So now there's a lot of vengeance involved in this because my pride is hurt. And I've been laughed at because Gail made me look silly. And he comes running his plays like he normally does. And I made up my mind how I'm going to attack his sweeps and do it differently than I'd done before. And so what my reputation had been was I took out the guard. The guards were scared to death of me because I hurt a lot of linemen. When you go underneath them, you're tearing up their legs, and they can't play anymore. I see. And so this particular play, they run a sweep. The guard sees me coming, and he dives over me. And when he dives over me, I hit Gale. And he screamed like a little girl. <laughs> it's not nice, but I'm, I'm, I'm venting. And so now he's laying on the ground screaming and yelling, and they're all running back to the huddle waiting for him to get up. I pick him up and walk him to the sideline, that leg is just dangling. So they come out and get him and take him off the field, and now they're upset. The old man, George Hallis, runs out on the field calling me names. And I don't realize it's him, and I think it's one of their players, and I reach back and turn around and get ready to square off, and I look up and it's him. And he sees me looking at him, and he realizes I'm getting ready to knock him out. And his eyes get big as half dollars. And I caught myself, and I yell at him, oh, man, get off my field. And he ran and jumped on the sideline. But George Hallis, to be fair, when he introduced Gail Sayers in his Hall of Fame induction speech, he mentioned that he didn't blame you. He didn't think it was a dirty hit. No one thought it was a dirty no, hit. No, the Bear fans did. Yeah. Because you heard his their superstar. Right, sure. So it had to... Un- Nobody could tackle Gale, so for somebody that hurt him, it had to be dirty. Right. And, that's, and they, they accused me of that. That's six, 1968. Mm-hmm. 1978, um, you make an appearance in not just, um, not just, you're not just represented in a film, but you actually act in a film. Yeah. Heaven Can Wait, which is probably the other great uh, pro football uh, film of history. Um, what do you remember about uh, working on that film? Uh, I, I remember it's tedious. Uh, it made made me really appreciate the abilities of actors to to put up with nonsense over and over and over again to get the right shot. Uh, it made me understand I never wanted to be in that business. 
I didn't like it. Why were you an uncredited? Why I don't know. Yeah. I think the reason for it was contractually. I see. If I get credit, then I ch- it changes the contract. I have to be paid more money because of the actors Got and the, uh, the union. If you're going to be credited, then there's a, there's a level of payment that goes with it. And if you're not, then they can do, pay you almost anything. Got it. Uh, that was the reason for that. Did you get to hit Warren Beatty? No. I had to, I had to, we had to work out how it looked like I hit him to make the tackle. And so uh, the first couple of times we did it, he didn't have an idea of what to do. And I finally had to explain to him what he had to do and show him how to do it. And then to show him what I was going to do and that he had to trust me. And that when I yelled at him, he had to dive. And when he dived, it looks like I tackled him. And so when we went through that a couple of times, he said, oh, well, this is, this is easy. This is how you guys do it? I said, no, this is not how you do it. I said, how we do it in real life is I don't say a word. I just cut you off. He said, what do you mean cut you? I take you by the, by the hamstring and break you in half. He said, oh, oh. I said, yeah, I have to pretend to like you now. In a game, I don't have to. I can hate you and break you up. Wow. <laughs> and he looked at me and he says, you guys, guys going to give us a shot at this? I said, yeah, if you want us to play for a, two or three minutes, maybe half a dozen plays, how we really play, and then we'll go on and shoot your movie, you can do that. So we set it up to do it. Whoa. And we did it for about, about six plays. He could not make a yard. Wow. And did anybody get a hit on him? We all did. Whoa. Because he was too slow to get out of the way. Yeah. And so what we did was the linemen tried to do their blocks, but because he's so slow, he was getting to the hole late, and we were cleaning him up. Yeah. And so after that series went, he, he stopped the practice, and he said, I now understand how you guys play and that it's serious and that I'm grateful that you guys are on my side. Nice. Now can we finish my movie? <laughs> What uh? What do you make of the Rams situation right now? Has it been super enjoyable? I mean, this team was uh, gone for 21 years in the in St. Louis. Has it? In what ways has it um, been enjoyable for you personally to have them return? Well, it's enjoyable to see them back home. Is how I look at it, and I like them at home. I don't care how well they play, whether they win or lose, I like them being home uh, so that I can call them my team. You know, because I'm from Southern California, I want a Southern California team. Uh, Having the perspective of having played, been a fan, learning to play with them, and then being a fan again, uh, I can enjoy it. And it doesn't matter to me whether they win or lose. I just like to see good play. And if they're playing consistently well, even if they don't win, I'm okay with it. What was it like for you that first game back in the Coliseum to see the Rams play? It, it was all home week for me. It's like I had been selling newspapers on the streets. And as a part of that deal, I get to go and watch the game. I'm a Ram fan, and I got, to, I got to watch my team play at home. One of the things that strikes me about your character um, and how you've experienced your, your incredible experiences through life, how you've um, chosen to remember the family members of yours who perished, um, who were killed. You have such a strong memory, such a vivid memory, such a living memory, and these people are so much a part of your 
your your life moving forward is it hard to have such a good memory not really you're born with it yeah you're born with it and you're taught how to use it um i can remember my grandfather being able to memorize half the bible and i asked him how do you do that he said i do what i'm supposed to do and part of that has to do with with your memory and the more you use your memory the better it becomes how that translates to being a person is the better person you are, the more people you attract to you, and the more capable you are of helping them do better. And so living life is part of a, a part of a team. You're not as an individual. You're a family member in a family. You're a community member in a community. You're a um, person in a school. You're a guy on a team. Those are all part of you, and you have to use your abilities to help that group do better. The last question I wanted to uh, ask you, Kermit, um, you know, your book, um, which chronicles um, this horrific crime, August 31st, 1984, um, it's a case of mistaken identity where you, you, your mother and your sister and your, your two nephews are murdered um, in, in South Central gang-related um, violence but also a case of mistaken identity the book is called um uh, the valley of the shadow of death and um it's obviously it's a it's a religious it's a reference to a quote from psalms um you still to this day um you you're you're you've, you've mentioned um the role of god in your life um you still consider yourself a, a religious man um, what role has has religion served in your life, and and um, and to what extent it does it um, animate your activities and in, in charities moving forward? Well, I have to go back throughout the history of my family. It's all been about religion and opportunities in family. Um, even in this day and age. Religion is a very important part of our family and our outlook on life. And part of that is our responsibilities to each other, uh, both as family members and as community members and as city members, et cetera, et cetera. And when something terrible happens within the group, it's like it's a disease. You have to figure out what the disease is and then try to rectify it. And sometimes it, it means you have to eliminate a limb to save the rest of the body. Uh, but this thing happened to my family and we figured out what had happened and everything was said and done we realized that some of those kids that needed help fell through the cracks and I was part of that and so even though the tragedy happened to my family I have to take some responsibility in that we didn't pay enough attention to the kids that needed the help to get them the help they needed to prevent them from doing this. We as a society. We as a society. And so uh, while I'm devastated because of my family being, being um, terrified with this, I'm also beholden because uh, my family still survived and we're still doing the things that we're supposed to do and we're still trying to help the people that need to be helped. And we're still trying to find ways to prevent kids from becoming uh, uh, pariahs of society. And so that's 
how we survive. That's how I've been able to live with this. That's how that how how I've been able to live through it, uh, pray our way through it, figure out a way to continue, and make sure you pay attention to those who need it to prevent this from happening ever again. It's not just talk. Uh, the kids in the other room, you you adopted uh, five children from from Haiti earthquake ravaged Haiti yes um, what year was that uh, 2010. 2010 about seven years ago you know and I'm a 69 year old man adopting kids well it's a way of life now he's 76 adopting kids. yeah uh, it's a way of life uh, you have the abilities you see people who need you go help them mm-hmm. or you pay the consequences and I've had to deal with the paying the consequences. I'll never, ever, ever let it happen again. Well, thank you for, for inviting me into your home. And um, it's a, I wish I could communicate the feeling of just walking in. You, you sort of, um, I feel like just uh, the second I walked in, you feel like this is a place filled with love um a warm place not just because the the fire's on and it's raining outside very rare for it to be raining but it's it's just a really uh feels like a very loving place and i I just i'm so appreciative of you uh, inviting me into your home to take this uh walk down memory lane thank you very much thank you for listening to the greatest show on grass this episode was produced by ryan kennedy andrew steven and me joshua newman If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and then review it on iTunes and recommend it to the Rams fans in your lives, whether they've been rooting for the team for 30 years or one year.